Welcome to Mormon Visual Culture, a podcast presented by the Zion Art Society and hosted by me, Micah Christensen. This year, we will celebrate the 50th anniversary of President Spencer W. Kimball's landmark talk, The Gospel Vision of the Arts, through discussions with prominent artists, collectors, and scholars about artwork that has inspired them and shaped LDS culture. Today, we bring you part two in a discussion we had with Dr. Josh Probert, an independent historical consultant with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, who did his undergraduate at BYU and then studied at Yale and at the University of Delaware, where he received his Ph.D. at the prestigious Winterthur Museum. Dr. Probert was an adjunct professor at the University of Delaware and worked closely at the Winterthur where he helped organize exhibitions, specifically focusing on Tiffany Studios and their religious output. So now we're beginning part two of our discussion. Um, in part one, we spent a lot of time talking about the tabernacle and the temple and, and the aesthetics that they represent. And now we're going to address a third building on Temple Square, the Assembly Hall. And we have images that um, you've brought that I have never seen before that we will put up on the website for this part two of our discussion. So I encourage anyone who's listening to go to zionartsociety.org forward slash podcast to see them. And uh, now I'll turn it over to you, Josh, to take us where you want to go um, with with this and, and what what the choices that are made in this building represent. Thanks, Micah. <clears throat> I think that this building represents a solution, uh, a sort of workable solution that the Latter-day Saints had come up with by the 1880s to resolving the paradox that we talked about in the beginning, namely the sort of more conservative Protestant aesthetic. That austerity that kind of is, is somewhat iconoclastic, right? It's, well, I, I guess... It's not somewhat the people in right. England, you know, whose churches they destroyed all the statues, they destroyed their organs, right. they busted out the stained glass window. It was iconoclastic. It was overtly, not somewhat. Yes. It was overtly iconoclastic. That, that's versus right. Versus the temple, which is, we've been using this word, this word Catholic. Yeah. But, um, which, which is to say that it, um, it embraces that. It has images of. Uh, on the exterior as well as the interior, it's it's uh, it's the complete opposite. That's right. It, it's drenched in symbolism, both um, specifically with carved, you know, or painted, or otherwise delineated symbols, but also the idea of, you know, the way that rooms progress, um, the way that, you know, the the idea of the baptismal font being buried underground, you, you know born and, and, and or dying and re, being reborn so it is drenched in symbolism and so um <clears throat> here in the assembly hall now this was originally the salt lake state tabernacle and um pretty quickly became um part of you know the owned by the church in general and was used so when you say owned by the church versus not owned by the church well let's reintroduce this idea oh, yeah. that that stakes at this point were in charge of raising money and building things themselves. And so this this was built on Temple Square, but it was used 
exclusively by that stake for the for, for, and built by them and designed by them. Correct for a short time. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, um, what you see here uh, is is the interior as it looked in the late nineteenth century, and a, a guy named William uh, C. Morris painted uh, the murals that are seen on the ceiling. I have never heard of the name of William C. Morris. Well, um, he was. Uh, well, that may be a great. Um, entree, or uh, whatever one wants to call it, into the topic, um, because uh, he wasn't somebody who was celebrated or popularized right. later by historians of quote-unquote Mormon art. Now, uh, his father was William V. Morris, and in the 18, it, it, when he died, um, the attributes to him called him, quote, the pioneer artist of Utah. Really? Yeah. This is, Morris was? His name was William V. Morris, right? Because when the books were written by um, Professor Olpin, Vern mm -hmm. Swanson, and right. others, when they talk about the pioneer artists, Dan Quirt Wagland is described as the father of Utah art alongside CCA Christensen right. and George M. Ottinger. Morris, I don't think anyone has in their pantheon of artists from the era. Right. But Morris was there. And these images, I mean, they're... they're um, it, and those, these are by his son, just to make clear. Okay, so his, so this is the, the father is the, is the, yeah, the pioneer and the, artist. Yeah, and the important thing about the father is, to answer your question, why are these guys... It's because when you talk about those books... Those are talking about um, somebody taking a canvas, framing it with a piece of wood, and hanging it on a wall. Art, art, not well, um, not not it, what it's we what call today, decorative. It's what today somebody would say right. is a history of Utah art. And so there you see the rub that in going back in time and saying this is our culture, just things that are in frames. That's the problem. Now, right. now William Morris, this. Uh, William V. He was, uh, according to Tullidge's um, history and um, entries at the time of his death, he was the person who did the um, original grain painting of the Lion House and the Beehive House. Hmm. And um, for those who aren't familiar with this idea, it's the notion that pre-railroad time, there were very few materials that were available, and but there was still a taste within. Utah culture, especially people like Brigham Young. Brigham Young had extensive cabinet making experience. Um, he did. Who, who was the the cabinet minister and the senator? Was it Seward that Brigham Young had done the interiors of his house and had done his fireplace? It's described in Doris Kern Goodwin's mm -hmm. book um, mm -hmm. um, Team of Rivals that Brigham Young had done very fine work in mahogany. But they don't have mahogany. They don't have they don't have exotic woods. So they come here. And one of the first things they do when they start doing these interiors is dressing up what materials they do have that are available into being finer than they actually are and graining, mm -hmm. faux marbling, faux graining of woods really is an, an elaborate art that they become expert at. That's right. And it, and it was not um, something they learned here. Um, uh, which is uh, commonly taught at historic sites in Utah. Huh. The uh, graining was a, a a skill that people in Europe, in 
New England in the American South that uh, they learned it there. Um, if you go to Southern plantation homes, you'll find, you know, that's where, and that's where the most of the money was in uh, pre-revolutionary and pre-Civil War America. You know, Charleston, for example, is the wealthiest city because um, of the slave uh, economic, you know, the, the benefit, the economic benefit of free labor. Right, so you've got this one percent that's doing all this yeah. sumptuous work, and so you look, and the but craftsmen you, yeah, who are right. supporting and, them. But when you look in their houses, for example, you'll find in New Orleans mansions and others that the marble um, surrounds on the fireplaces are painted. It's a faux marbling, and the doors will be grained, even though they could have purchased marble. And so it's not um, that it was this sort of yokel, local thing that people picked up out here. How do we deal with these softwoods? It was something that was, you know, they were trained in and they had learned. So it wasn't just were, the dearth of softwoods. It was literally that there was a taste for this. That's right. Interesting. I had that's not right. known that. And so um, William Morris, you know, is somebody who, uh, you know, is doing that. And um, now the... the um, the son uh, who did these, um, I want to read a an excerpt uh, out of a um, historic magazine where it says, William C. Morris, painter of this city, has placed on exhibition in the post office one of the finest gems of the painter's art we have ever seen. It is an ornamental sign in etched work on glass and gives convincing proof of his wonders, wonderful skill in the art ornamental. Another piece of his work may be seen in the ornamental lettering, lettering of the windows of ZCMI. There are 12 windows in all, the lettering and designs of each window being emblematical of each branch of business done in the co-op. It is quite a work of art. Very, very interesting choice of words. And you emphasize them as you're talking about. It's the idea of skill, craft, art, that are all being used as as synonymous with one another on some level it's the idea the artist as a skilled craftsman but it is it's not to but but it's it's what we would call decorative today and they weren't putting that in the in a in a separate category from a fine artist right right and so uh, in this culture um those um, hierarchies were well established. You know, th they really solidify between 1800 and 1830, when uh, you know, painting, sculpture, uh, and architecture are made like it. Um, and and what that did, um, and that process is, you know, we don't have a, a seminar to go over that here. But um, what that did, it, it denigrated the skills of other people, and particularly skills of women. Uh, this was a gendered hierarchy. Hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and that sort of separation uh, continued uh, into the 20th century and continues to frame uh, debates over this word, art, what is an high art or fine art, right? And, um, <clears throat> and and so here in the assembly hall, what you see is an integration that is much more like uh, a medieval system or an early Renaissance system, where um, 
the hierarchies um, didn't exist in the same way. Now, that's not to say they weren't hierarchies, right? Because there, there still were some. For example, the most celebrated and um, revered guild and guild work in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance was embroidery. Uh, by far. Right. And if you look at vestments for clergy, uh, you know, um, clothing for people like the Medici later, um, altar coverings, table coverings, the seating, uh, the upholstered cushions, uh, this was the highest well, when skill. I, when, when I think back to um, the Vatican itself, um, there's there's a story that's rarely told in the history of art, and maybe there's an opportunity to write a book about it. Uh-huh. <laughs> Somebody else, not not me, or yeah. us necessarily. But Michelangelo finished the Sistine Chapel, and we all reverence and think of the Sistine yeah. Chapel ceiling as being the greatest work of art within the Vatican. Uh-huh. But Raphael, um, afterwards, when um, when Pope Julius died, he was th- he was subsequently. Was it Pope Julius? The details, whatever the details are, mm-hmm. I'll leave those to the side. He was commissioned to do cartoons for tapestries that were to go at the base of the Sistine Chapel. And something like, I'm going to get these numbers wrong again, but it was 20 times the cost to make the tapestries with all of their weaving and yep. with all the. And, and the, the vast majority of that money did not go to Raphael. Right. He was the cheapest part of the process. It was those who were working on. The embroider uh, on the tapestry process and with the fabrics, the expensive fabrics of the time, mm-hmm. and it, that comes down in some ways culturally when we have hope chests that are lined with cedar because when you get married, your dowry is in embroidered materials, it's in lace, it's in mm-hmm. these things that were valued as an art form. Um, in a way that that uh, later when the hierarchies come yeah. in and they separate um, craft from art, right. Um, uh, uh, distinguish from craft and thought as being two separate activities. Well, thought and 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 the idea of the invention of genius, right? Inspiration, right? The individual, um, the idea of of the work, you know, a work of that right. would have been foreign to somebody like Shakespeare. When I look at these pictures of the assembly hall, the, I immediately th- think of, uh, and I know it's not a direct channel, but I thought of 18th century Rococo ceilings. And people like Tiepolo, who were degraded um, in the minds of a lot of art historians for generations, because his work was was um, seen as decorative rather than um, narrative, figurative work, which he was trained in. And that was the century before Felibien had described, had created, not created, but articulated that idea of the hierarchies. At the very top, you have multifigural, allegorical, historical painters, the next level, portraiture, the next level, genre artists. Below that in the hierarchy were people who painted scenes from everyday life, and then animals, and then dead life, natur mort, and then landscape. And then at the very bottom was, um, was decorative art. And he put those in those categories because he said it only, the work of God was to do was to do man and to paint man. And when you look at a ceiling like this, um, and maybe I'm getting ahead of where you want to go with this, you've got a detailed image of the ceiling that has very um, 
um, ambitious architectural works alongside figurative works. Mm -hmm. But if you were to give this to many art historians, they'd say, because it's within the confines of a defined panel and on a ceiling or cartouche of some kind, it's decorative. Right. And so we should take the Sistine Chapel out of art history books also then. <laughs> because it is fit within an architectural program. And it's highly illustrative. Yes. Um, you have the 20th century, this you know invention of, oh, you're an illustrator and I'm an artist. And people like Edward Hopper and Winslow Homer, uh, who worked for Harper's Weekly, a newspaper uh, and journal magazine, drawing pictures and illustrations, you know, Hopper wanted to get out of that so he could get the credibility, you know, he deserved. Um, and, but why couldn't he do both, right? And so the, the, the point I wanted to make to tie that back to this is that for Morris, there was no difference between doing a church, a sign, or lettering on a window. And the same would be true for those, you know, Renaissance people that you talk about. But there's an important um, piece here also, and that's the subject matter, that it's uniquely um, Mormon in, in theme, the way uh, he's depicting the Manti Temple, the Logan Temple, Salt Lake Temple, St. George Temple. Um, you have the all-seeing eye of God over the pulpit. Oh, is that what it is? Because I'm, I'm looking at it. Yes, I can see it now in the image. Uh-huh. And... Um, that motif, you know, appears throughout um, all, all, you know, I think of Mormon visual culture, uh, it was on many buildings. It, it's still in the St. George Tabernacle, but it would be also on the top of the entrance of ZCMI. Um, and then uh, hmm. you have pictures of the Savior uh, that are uh, Protestant-type images. What makes them Protestant in your opinion? What what make how describe these images? Because we can't see them very clearly well, in here. Well, they're similar to things that were made, uh, produced, and and if I could see them closer, they may be exact copies of things by German painters. Um, Heinrich Hoffmann today enjoys great popularity, right, um, among Amer Mormons, and so he did in the nineteenth century. It's the kind of it images means, that would have illustrated Bibles. That's right. Okay, so they would have gotten these things from that kind of print culture that was going that's around right. in the late 19th, in the mid to late 19th century. It's not like an Eastern Orthodox or Russian Orthodox icon of Jesus. Okay. It's not the Panko Krator, you know, of Byzantine art. It's not the suffering right. servant um, or the Beaudieu of medieval art. Uh, it is a friend, it's a friendly, um, approachable uh, teacher who has, you know, people around him. And so um, that, you know, so those images are there, but also you have the restoration of the priesthood, Joseph Smith, Oliver Cowdery, et cetera. And so, um, so it has this, you know, it's borrowing from the culture, but it's also borrowing uh, from its own recent past. Maybe we can't know this, but mm -hmm. one of the things that, that comes to my mind as I'm looking at this is if you would, let's say that in the mid 19th century, you were creating a Catholic church. Mm -hmm you would know that your building on an image basis would have to conform to a certain program, right? You would have the Stations of the Cross. You would have, if, you're, if you are a cathedral, 
you would have a certain saint that it would be associated with. And so you would maybe have narratives in addition to those stations of the cross, which are affixed, that refer to that particular saint. And then you'd have different areas like the vestibule, which would be uh, would have a certain iconography associated with it. When I look at this, I think, you know, what is the Mormon equivalent of the stations of the cross that he's trying to conjure here? He's got temples, which is interesting that in a tabernacle, he would put images of other buildings, right? And, and, and these would therefore be the equivalent of the most sacred things you could, you could do. Is he picking certain moments from the life of Christ that he feels like are important? Well, I think your, your question um, assumes that he selected the image. Right, which, which yeah, and, and... Which goes back to the, the point. Definitely, right? Definitely. If this building is a group activity, and it's under the stake at the time, so it's not like these decisions are being made by a Brigham Young, or are they? Do we know? Well, uh, these were uh, painted in three years after Brigham Young had died. Okay. And so um, we know, at least he's not involved in it, but somebody else was for sure uh, that one... The, the church leadership just wouldn't have given free reign to somebody to go do whatever he or she liked. On Temple Square, even if it was built by the state. Or anywhere, in yeah. any tabernacle, uh, right. in any stake. Neither would have the Pope Julius just said, do whatever you want and just send me a bill. Right. Nor would have Cosmo Medici. Yeah. Now, um, and so that's, that's a romantic ideal of the artist as un and uninhibited, unfettered to express his or her own vision. And so here <clears throat> that the artist is part of the community and uh, is working toward, you know, this sort of shared goal. And uh, Truman Angel, when you read his journal, uh, you, you get this sense of humility by him. Uh, and here's the, the gentleman who designed the most maybe impressive uh, successful, whatever adjective somebody wants to use to describe the Salt Lake Temple, but uh, it is those things. And <clears throat> he says in one phrase that I am just a lowly worm hmm. in this process. And what he meant is I have my skills and everything, but um, it's the church leaders program. I work with them and Brigham Young is involved with designing it um, and other church leaders. And so um, th there's just a lot of humility there, right? Uh, where it's not that he's saying, I'm not skilled or I don't know what I'm doing, but it wasn't all about him. And so he didn't put a red tile with his initials like Frank Lloyd Wright might on the building and say, you know, similar to autographing a painting, this is it and it's mine, and if you change it, the tile comes off, right? And, and so it was just a different way of thinking. Do you think that we have, that there's any vestige of that mentality today in, in the making of church buildings and art and, and so forth? I mean, is that, yes. is that, is that still our, our modus operandi? Or? Well, when you say are, there, there, there are a lot of, there's um, what we might call official LDS culture, meaning uh, church buildings, meeting house buildings, um, visitor centers, temples, uh, things like that, where it is highly collaborative. Um, and uh, each building is a, this a sort of um, manifestation of 
of negotiation, of power negotiations. And without without um, talking about, because I know your job, um, you're working on projects that are not uh, mm-hmm. so far public, but this is something you have some 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 uh, experience with because as an independent historical consultant for the church you are often working on projects where the where where decisions are made that require multiple stakeholders all the way from a general authority who may not be an experienced architect but who has an opinion about something and who's been been tasked with the responsibility of helping in the decision process to architects who are worried about the functionality and and use and mm-hmm. and traffic issues to you who I would probably, from what I know about you, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're often concerned with maintaining um, with your specific projects the historical character and veracity of something, right? Mm-hmm. Which can often be conflicting, but sometimes they're not. Well, um, they are, they... It, it depends. Some things can be, and and sometimes. Yeah. And I don't want to press you. But no, no, you're not. About any you're not. You're fine. They could be. You're, you're fine. All all of those are different lenses, right? Right. And um and the nice thing about that is that, um, those people all bring valuable insights that, either I or other members of a team don't think about. For example, I'm, we may have come to a great design solution. And it, it checks all the boxes, and then somebody says, okay, so then where is somebody in the wheelchair going to go? And we all go, oh, I didn't think about that. Wow. So there, there are important voices at these tables. And, um, and so uh, you, you'll see that sort of, you know, but collaboration can be frustrating. And uh, with the recent, well, not so recent now, but... There have been plans to reconstruct, well, not reconstruct, but build a, a new uh, set of buildings where the World Trade Center stood in Salt Lake, called Salt Lake, in New York. And um, you had very prominent architects, right, who were involved in that. And some left, you know, because it, they weren't, it, it wasn't only their, their vision. So they wanted it their way and that's it, right? This, and so that's the, instead of collaborating and helping yes. come to a solution, they, they had this you know, romantic ideal of it's mine and everything in, and it needs to be my vision and I cannot work with this person because they don't get what I get. And so it's a different mentality. This goes back to this larger issue that, that uh, you're talking about that, okay, let's, let's go back and I want to deliberately talk about Michelangelo because we use this term in the church. I've heard it. It's not just me. And it comes largely, I think, or maybe it didn't originate from him, but at least we attribute it to him, to Spencer W. Kimball's Gospel Vision of the Arts saying mm-hmm. um, that one day we will have a Mormon Michelangelo, a Shakespeare, someone who will express our highest values in art. And that may be an inherent contradiction in a, a large project like the building of Zion because you have, in Michelangelo's case specifically, he gets asked by Pope Julius to add to this pre-existing building of the ceiling. And um, Pope Julius wanted to do a theme along the, the, the idea of the 12 apostles. And there's a story of um, he was laying um, siege to the city of Genoa. Um, Michelangelo comes up and he says, I don't think we want to do that. 
I've got a whole other idea based on pre-diluvian, pre-flood, and post-flood of Noah. I want to do creation, and I want to do post, mm -hmm. and I want to do. I want to scrap your twelve apostles idea. And then we all say, "Oh, Michelangelo, as the great genius of art, contradicted the Pope with his artistic vision." But the reality is, is that Michelangelo was set up in an apartment right near the Pope, and they have back and forth discussions for months and months and months. And not only that, but Michelangelo doesn't really know how to paint on this ceiling. And he struggles and he brings in artisans from Florence who had worked on the walls below and with other people. And he is learning while he's discussing and he's learning on a craftsman-like level, he's part of a team. And on a conceptual level, he's working with a pre-existing building and with a Pope who has got very strong ideas about every element of it too. So what percentage of it is Michelangelo? We talk about it as 21st century people, as if he is a lone genius, right? But you are saying here that Mahan Ray Young, Salt Lake mm -hmm. Temple, mm -hmm. oh, uh, humble- You mean Truman Angel. Truman, sorry, Truman Angel, sorry, Truman Angel. Salt, uh, Salt Lake Temple. Um, sees himself as a cog almost in the machine mm -hmm. morris he is now considered by us somewhat a cog in the machine in fact these don't exist anymore right. but they were saying someone who is doing the signs of zion's zion's mercantile ccmi who's doing the ceilings artist do we need to readjust the way that we think about the artist relationship in lds culture or just not even just an LDS culture, but has there been a major readjustment that not all of us are aware of in what a genius and artist role is in the creation of great works? These collaborative projects in particular? Well, your question is a you know prescriptive question of you know what, what would I recommend? <laughs> and so uh, instead of me sort of prescribing what should happen here or there, uh, let me. Um, talk about some of the the cultural structures that are at stake or, or that, that frame this and then some of the benefits some of the the losses that have happened over the 20th century and and, and that continue today and I think frame uh, up to today sure um, the first thing is to say that <clears throat> when we talked last time I talked about the Protestant aesthetic as opposed to a Catholic or Anglican aesthetic and use the tabernacle and the Sali Temple as material evidences right. of this. And so in that in so much as material culture is culture made material, um, th those two buildings sort of represent these poles. Now, Protestantism changed a lot, though, Protestant, Protestant aesthetics during the late 19th century. Um, and for many, especially liberal Protestant churches, if you go to like downtown Boston, Newberry Street, or uh, Manhattan, you can't tell the difference between a Catholic, Anglican, Methodist, Episcopal, Baptist church unless you go look at the sign. Fascinating. Huh. And that's uh, you know you know a story uh, that that 
that it's somewhat related to what happens with Latter-day Saints in the 19th century, that they build Gothic revival chapels with stained glass windows depicting Joseph Smith and the first vision. They're highly ornamented and really beautiful. Um, but a new uh, sort of wave or you know cultural movement frames the 20th century that on top of that, I wouldn't say it's ever gone. I know it's not gone. Okay. Uh, but, and that's um, modernism. And, um, and when I say that, that's a, you know, a fraught word, uh, problematic word in many ways. Right. But I, when I use it, what I mean is uh, the way, and maybe an architectural historian would say high modernism of the twenties and thirties that, um, became concretized in, uh, what Le Corbusier would call the international style, which, um, was a highly utilitarian style. Um, Bauhaus would be grouped in with this maybe a little bit, a lot bit. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, um, both were found, both grew out of uh, ideologies of efficiency, of um, the idea of um, rejecting the past. And for some, that had a lot of merit, uh, especially looking at the carnage that World War I wrought upon the European landscape. Uh, they felt this is where hundreds of years, thousands of years of Western culture got us. Mm. You have people like Ezra Pound and Wyndham Lewis who write about this eloquently about how these institutions have failed us and it's time to start over. That's right. And the aesthetics go with the institutions. That's right. That's right. And so Le Corbusier says, you know, we should, we would do well to sit in rooms with white walls and to ponder upon what has happened. It's powerful. Yeah. And, and it's hard to argue with on, 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 on philosophically, there's an argument there. Yeah. 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 So, and so you have, so you have that sort of problem, cultural nihilism that leads to the existentialists philosophy, you know, people like Jean-Paul Sartre, etc. But then you have the other side that still has faith in, and it's highly faithful in human ability, uh, in human technology, in human science, and orderliness, and all those type of things. Um, and so um, when Le Corbusier calls the house a machine for living, uh, we just that phrase is drenched with, right. um, particular meanings of that time i was just i was just thinking it, it immediately conjures the silent movie modern times and the idea of it's like that 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 a machine itself was something that had to do with efficiency and had to do with a certain kind of like it was almost there, there was a scientific element to it but there was also a dead element to it right there's right. So also this 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 notion of you want to get rid of its certain influence it's the opposite of the arts and crafts movement right and, and charlie <laughs> chaplin in that movie right yeah is sort of like it, it, it notice that it takes no consideration for him right it, it takes in the human is not taken into consideration in the same way that I talked about in the 19th century, the threat that capitalism, modern capitalism posed to people that the laws of supply and demand don't take into account one's family, one's culture, one's religion, one's, you know, heritage. It, it's just about, uh, the bottom line. And so, yeah. it, you know, so people, families are torn apart constantly and communities. 
uh, to where you know now we have suburbs where people don't know who their next door neighbors are. There, there seems to be a strand in Mormonism that that from Joseph Smith up until later shows up, which is this abandon the traditions of the past. We've got a new, but this it's there's there's that famous uh, moment that I think of where uh, a man gets up and prays in a congregation before Joseph Smith, and uh, he's invited to say the opening or closing prayer, and he does it in a very stylized way that would have been familiar to those of other religions of the time. And Joseph Smith says, now I want to tell everybody, you don't have to pray like a jackass for God to hear you. And his way of doing that is he's trying to ridicule this other tradition in a way for being so stylized that it misses the fundamental point. And Joseph Smith is trying to bring them back to his basics and rewrite things. Right, but at the same time, everything he's doing is described as a restoration by later times. So it's a contradiction. We're starting over and we're getting rid of the past, but we're also restoring the past in its way. And when I look at this building that you've that, that they've got at the assembly hall, clearly there's this decorative program, but it gets whitewashed at some point. Mm-hmm. Who whitewashes it? Who whitewashes the interior of the assembly hall? Somebody's got to cringe when they're getting rid of the Manti Temple on the ceiling of the assembly hall, mm-hmm. right? Well, that, that that's a great question uh, about heritage. Yeah, there's a lot tradition. of what I said. I know I'm kind of driving and, it towards and the so ceiling. And so let me let me just finish framing this. Okay, go ahead. Sorry, yeah, Protestant Catholic to the 20th thought. century, you have the secularized version of Protestantism. Let's call it in high modernism. Um that is um, allergic to anything that is not at its most developed, you know, it's allergic to anything that is not just purely functional, right? Uh, so adornment, etc. any ornament is gone. And so I had a, um, I was able to interview Walter Gropius's daughter, Adi Gropius. Wow. Uh, in a project, uh, I was working on when I was um, in graduate school at Winotor, and uh, and and I asked her about religion, you know, in particular, and she said, "Oh, that was the R word in our house." Really? Yeah. That, that Not was, really, but, <laughs> but the yeah. R religion was was uh, was uh, I was going to say persona, but it'd be verbum non grata. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And 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 so you see that you know with yeah. with people like Mies van der Rohe, Joseph Albers, and etc. That that there's this at the same time they're rejecting Western culture, they're fully embracing it. it it's sort of optimism in the ability of human beings to use technology to better you know the human life, right? And um, anyway, so you have that kind of thing. On the other side, you have. Um, the appeal to tradition, to heritage, and humanism. And so if you look at our history textbook, it will say that you went through, say, like the Victorian styles. Maybe they'll talk about the American Renaissance with architecture by people like Stanford White and um, Richard Morris Hunt, the Centennial Exposition in Chicago, the White City, right? And then it's sort of like modernism. But in fact, modernism was uh, a huge failure uh, in American domestic life. In fact, Americans built colonial revival 
houses that were patterned after Cape Cod patterns, Virginia, um, Levittown, the you know major planned suburb on Long Island, was all colonial revival houses. So there's there's this disti- there's this distinction between those who have this philosophy, who are who who are trying to promote it for the good of mankind, and then what what the people want to live with on a daily basis. Yeah, yeah, and 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 but but it's important to to note what they selected is they selected American historical architecture. Um and there are the same things going on for example in Sweden. There's a, a Gustavian revival of 18th century Swedish uh, architecture, decorative arts, etc. That happens, and so um, so one of the one of the um, framing tensions of modernity writ large is the idea of progress and innovation versus tradition. If you were to go back to medieval England, the time of the, the guilds we've talked about, people didn't talk about tradition. They didn't have have to. It just was. This is the way that our local folk dances, they wouldn't have used that word, right? They That's wouldn't like, have called it a folk dance. Yeah, right. It, this they is the way our, dance. our dances are done. This is what you do at a wedding. This is our saint, and it has been our saint for 1,500 years. And this is what we do on that feast day. Right. There wouldn't have been a separate bookshelf that said our traditional activities. Right, right. Let's get it off the shelf and do it. Right, so modernity mm-hmm. creates what historian Eric Hubsbaum calls, you know, the invention of tradition. And that invention of traditions takes place most clearly in diasporic communities where some say immigrants have come from Italy and they are living in Pittsburgh, working at a Carnegie steel mill. You get an enclave and they will they have to build their own church to their saint from, let's say, Genoa or something. And then they reconstruct home there, food ways, music ways, et cetera, because all of a sudden their identity is at stake. Well, let's, let's say you, so I saw a map recently of, of uh, the cultural heritage of the United States as defined by nationality. And it showed a map of the United States <clears throat> Um, and and uh, it was very diverse. We had Latin American um, along the borders and along California. You had a lot of Germanic in the Midwest. And then you had two pockets of English and Northern European. One was the Northeast of the United States. The other was the Utah-Idaho region. A lot of the people who had come here, and you bring up this idea of taking a culture, <clears throat> planting it, in, in from where they were to the new place, grafting it into the new area where they were. Were the saints in the 20th century very self-conscious about were English, were Danish, were Northern European? Or did they think of it almost like a utopian experiment where they're throwing away a lot of these traditions in favor of a kind of Bauhaus we're going to we're going to create this new aesthetic that's all our own that isn't that, that's a no, restoration aesthetic. It's just the opposite. It's just the opposite of what happens is in the 19th century they they have their local um, 
you know, ways of living, but they see themselves first and foremost as part of Zion. And that that they their culture, their identities, their egos are sort of subsumed into that larger project. In the 20th century is when you get um, things like Swiss Days, which know, take in place mid- midway, up in midway, right? Yeah, right. Also Scandinavian uh, Days in San Pete County, and so because what happens, you have their particular descendants of of people from those countries who are. Um, identifying the nationalist and kind of piece. reasserting their roots. Yeah, that nationalist piece, and and that's the force that people like Gropius and Bender uh, that that they were suspicious of because it had caused World War One. That idea that my nation's better than yours, that God looks favorably upon my nation, right? And God bless me. Don't bless outside of my borders. Mm. Um, and that led to the buildup of navies and then other types of military uh, and uh, colonization of Africa, South America, the islands of the sea, and led to this sort of, you know, bloodshed. And so, and so there's this sort of, you know, real big reach against nationalism. But, um, but in la- the way that this frames Latter-day Saint culture is that... Um, you have um, the um, com- competing um, claims on what, let's say, building should look like, and the role of um, ornament and so-called art, right, in in that project. When you say competing claims, do you mean by community, or do you mean within the structure of the church, or do you? I mean, or do you with- mean all of it? Well, all of it. I I mean, there are thousands of people involved, really. Uh, And any object, whether it's um, a ballpoint pen or it's a tabernacle or an automobile, right? It's all, each object is the manifestation of the negotiations of power. It's, it's, Maybe think of a metaphor this way. The U.S. Constitution is the result of a lot of debates. It's the result of people behind the scenes talking, going to dinner, maybe. Will you do this for me? And then I'll do this for you. And It's a consensus document. Yeah. And so in many ways, that that's how... Uh, a lot of build, any building you know is whether it's like we talked about the, the Freedom Tower in New York, or a temple today, um, that uh, and and so in that way it sort of encapsulizes you know ideologies of the time and, and what mattered to them. So so let me ask a question then about this and and you can you can answer a different question if this yeah. is in the direction you want to go in but it's it's a question that I told you that that that. That I wanted to write an essay a little while ago, that, that and I didn't tell you what the title of it was. But the ti- Tom Wolf famously, um, he's an anti-modernist, the author of *The Bonfire of the Vanities*, and he uh-huh. he wrote a book called *From Bauhaus to Our House*, talking about how he lamented that modernism had um, had had made its way down to the popular to, to 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 popular culture in such a way that that it did get rid of many of the traditions and, and aesthetics that are in our home. 
And I I was joking with a friend the other day, and I said, I'd like to write an essay called From Bauhaus to Ward House, mm-hmm. where it talks about the chapels of the post, um, of, of the international era, where we have cinder block, white painted walls, we have chalkboards with aluminum um, frames, and no painting is bigger than a chalkboard, and everything looks the exact same. Mm-hmm. And and that is in an era I had always attributed it to, at a time when the church is, it's not concerned so much about the aesthetics of things, but it is concerned that, oh, we built this, the, this we let this ward and this stake build these buildings, and they fell apart after 10 or 15 years. Because there wasn't a central committee that was handling sourcing of materials, and there wasn't a unified or, or solid plan for how we were going to build foundations, and we were going to do piping. And, and so it wasn't necessarily that there was this aggressive Tom Wolfe-esque scheme to change LDS aesthetics. It was more that it just became a functional practicality, that when you're building... 30 chapels a year at one point, maybe you're building hundreds of chapels a year or thousands. It's just more practical to use the same basic material and to not rethink about, not rethink these things. But then that has consequences, right? And the consequences are that a building in, uh, in, in, uh, um, the, it, it is, is that Mondrian and, and Le Corbusier and some, Mondrian's the wrong example, Le Corbusier and some of these others, that their practical white wall won in the end, in a way. Mm-hmm. And that we, we lost, that, that, that history was, was, uh, was not, not necessarily erased, but that was, the, that was the end result, is that we don't have the ceilings in the assembly hall anymore. Right. Well, so th- so so you've you've well laid out the 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 way that the tensions that have been negotiated on the one high the one side, it's a utilitarian efficiency aesthetic versus a um, an aesthetic of sensory pleasure of tradition of heritage, and so if you see in this uh, photograph of the assembly hall, you know it's highly drenched in symbolism, like I talked about. And, and that was removed uh, from buildings during the 20th century and continues to um, be uh, today in many ways. And, um, and so you, you have um, <clears throat> the, the um, you, you say, you talk about the practicality of it, right? Well, that in and of itself, or you know, economic efficiency, right? That is in and of itself a statement of what one values, and so you can read these buildings as a statement of value, because they are, after all, a type of fossilized ideology of a time <clears throat> that um, stand over and against the 19th century buildings. But the irony is, is that the church built its most beautiful, highly ornamented, embellished buildings when it was its most poor. Wow, that is a really... So that's why I say it's not just about money. No, it's not. Because if you go to medieval Europe, right, um, it's, you know, no, nobody was more poor, let's say, right, than the community of Chartres, France. Right, that built... 
now, over how many how many hundreds of years? Yeah, and that's not to it? to ignore the role of politics and wealthy, you know, uh, feudal landlords in the construction of medieval churches. Nevertheless, it, it, it's a statement of of, of what one values. Um, and those and those were not made with like slave labor, let's say like ancient Egypt or Rome, mm-hmm. uh, but the Salt Lake Temple, for example, it took forty years to build, and and so it, it was something much different. And so so if you look at some buildings, uh, like for example the the um, Provo Temple and the the original Ogden Temple, they were designed to be highly efficient. Um, at a time when the endowment had been shortened. Uh, and um, for both content, but also for efficiency reasons, right? And so that 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 idea of efficiency, right? You know that that's a very modern concept. It, it grows out of late nineteenth century management and industrial production studies. And so, um, but and so it's been very successful in that way. In terms of, in some ways, I should say, I can't because have- the. Uh, the MTC's right there, BYU for endowments, but the number of people who get married there is very low. It, it really compared to Manti, Salt Lake, where people want an aesthetic experience, right? Right. They, they want to want go there as just efficiency, a, and a, that's why I went to the Salt Lake Temple rather than the Bountiful Temple where I grew up. It's. It reminds me of an article that I had read some time ago. I was I was I was in London, and the Book of Mormon musical had just become famous. And the Book of Mormon musical was plastering all of of London buses, the transport for London signs in the tube. They were all Book of Mormon. And the church rightly took advantage of this moment and said, let's do our own campaign, Ask a Mormon. And somebody in the Sunday Times paper, the Times of London Sunday edition, had who was one of their principal writers, wrote an article and said, for weeks, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has been knocking on my door wanting to have us do a major article on them at the same time that the Book of Mormon musical is getting this attention. And I succumbed. And I spent an entire week with the leadership of the church in the UK, touring their buildings, talking with everyone. And this is my conclusion, that they were all extremely nice, wonderful, and efficient, and that Mormons are the corporate management consultants of the Christian world. And that phrase, when I heard it, <clears throat> stung me. It stung. Because on one hand, I realize that, that um, my grandparents, when they went to the Salt Lake Temple and traveled from South Carolina to come here to be married in the temple and sealed as a family, it was a 13-hour ceremony, right? And the Salt Lake Temple was originally built for that 13-hour ceremony. And they would only went, my grandparents probably only went to the temple during their lifetime a handful of times. I've been more times than they have by, by, by far just by virtue of our culture today where you do have the endowment session that is an hour and a half rather than 13 hours. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but how, and so if you were to ask me, and maybe it is a false choice, would I rather have a temple ceremony that's 13 hours than in a building that matches and was built for that aesthetic that goes from room to room mm-hmm. to room versus one that a corporate management consultant culture has put me through in an hour and a half. I want the building from one. I want the efficiency of the other. Is that a false mm-hmm. choice? 
Or is, I mean, and no, maybe you no, can't those answer are, the, that. The, those are the negotiations that are always being made right now. And it's, and it's, it, there's part of me that doesn't feel like I have to make that choice. And maybe, maybe we do. It's, it's, I'm, I'm, I don't really, ha I'm just reacting to this because it's, it's really coming down forcefully on me as we're talking about it, that these are choices that, that have been made, but I realize the necessity often of these choices. It's, it's your building. Uh, the Catholic Church has a very different approach when it comes to building a cathedral. They often let the local diocese, almost like we used to let a stake build a tabernacle. But the result is, is that they're hit and miss, a lot of these buildings. Do we want a hit and miss culture where aesthetically some of them work out and also functionally mm -hmm. some of them work better than yeah. others? Well, or do I, we want a, a, a central model? I, th I think that, that um, the, the larger question, you know, is um, that, is it, the question I would have uh, as a cultural historian is: Is do Latter Day Saints have a theology of beauty, um, or you know, at, at least a you know, a tradition of thought of beauty? Is that important or not? Um, Brigham Young did. I can say that much. What was and, Brigham Young's? I know we're running low well, on time, but I want to hit well, this before was, we go. He he had that medieval mindset that. Um, that he spoke of arts in in the historic sense that you know the you had it, it was just a skill you know that's all and so, so pre-hierarchy period yeah we're talking yeah. a guild mentality of yeah, craftsman yeah. and, and artist, so he, seamless he would use you know the word art if he's talking about farming you know the arts of the agricultural you know implement you know the arts of that the arts of um, metal smithing military um that uh, Michael Hicks has written about. Um, and so he would say that every art is, quote, a useful branch of learning. But then all these come, came under a, a sort of uh, Aristotelian type umbrella of beauty. Uh, one time he said, everything that is pleasing to the eye, good to the taste, pleasant to the smell, and happifying in every respect is for the saints. In another place, he said, the power of the eye is for man to enjoy. The power of hearing likewise, tasting, smelling, how beautiful they are. So there you see that rejection uh, that I talked about last time of that suspicion of the senses. Right. You know, and, and, and of pleasure. So and, it's actually an embrace. It's an embracing of those things. What it is a rejection of, too, is it's also a rejection of the one genius it's that these things are that's right uh, uh, who's going to create it's that these things are all available to all of us they're part of it's an integrated whole of of the craftsman and art and experience that's and right worship. yeah it's not that he it's separate it's not that you go to a gallery and you see art on a wall it's that you art is the ZCMI sign art yeah. is the doorknob art is the mural on the wall and it's the Mahan Rai, it's the, not Mahan Rai, it's the, it's the Moroni statue on the temple. It's all of it. That's right. Art. Well, and beyond that, right? It, it's, it's farming for him. It's oh, a, yeah. a well-planned row of sugar beets. But as far as th these types of visual, you know, aesthetic arts, let's say, um, yeah, um, that they were combined. And so when you say, you know, it's not something to go into a gallery, that that's... A, 
that's something that grows out of the salon um, and then um, which was kind of a critique and also a, um, a sales opportunity in France and in England but then when you get um, you know galleries in New York in the early 20th century and up to today um, that has now become uh, a particular type of culture and particular type of let's call it contemporary art culture so I, um, I have a good friend and we like to go to the Armory Show in New York so we flew back you know I flew back and went to the Armory Show and I often go to the Chelsea galleries and things like that right it's an exciting time exciting yeah. thing to go see and so but but so that that type of world though it has its own it's a, it's its own type of a cultural elite that um, is highly removed from popular culture, let's call it, um, and purposely so, um, to be successful in in in, in its sort of self um, reproducing project, and um, and and that type of culture doesn't translate easily, at least you know, or else maybe it will. I don't know. You know, what does that have to do with? Um, this, like, say, an image like this. What does it have to do with the integration where everybody's valuable, especially um, when the schools that produce that are producing that culture um, don't teach skill, they don't teach craft like they used to. Now, um, for example, uh, if you look at the um, website of the Yale Art Department, which is often known, you know, it's the number one painting program. Right. Uh, people talk about it as great, and I went there and I go to their open studios and see everything you know. And now it it says that there they invite talented artists to dialogue with each other, and then um, if you click through the class descriptions, you know it's about, uh, for example, one on on drawing. It says in this class we will talk about what does it mean to draw. Well, that's an interesting philosophical question, and anthropologists have talked about that, and you know, beginning with um, pre-human drawings. Sure, yeah, right. and that's a great. But but so then, if they're doing that, what are what are you doing? And um, and so there's a there's an impoverishment of skill for many people that come out of those programs, and it's not fair to them uh, because they've prepared them only to function in a gallery culture. Um, and they've told them that if you do things outside of this, then you're quote selling out, you know, you're own, you're relegated to craft, and so um, there's a denigration of people who don't do the type of arcane um, things that they do that aren't off-putting, that aren't, you know, what does this mean? Right, that are very complex and complicated, and and so they're they're their own little sort of studies. But the other thing about that culture that is, is it's very temporary, and it's and so it, it tracks fashion. It, it's and like so fashion, it's, but it, it's also something that comes up and it goes down and it's gone. And if if a religion, in this case, talking about Mormonism, is about permanence, it's about eternal truce. It's about it's, and, and if it's wanting to integrate, then you know those concepts and beauty which is another thing that's you know uh, you talk to anybody who's gone to modern architecture school art school and and if you even talk about beauty beauty is the b word you're seen as yeah <laughs> beauty is the b word passe 
And that's that's yeah. a tragic thing because beauty has for millennia had very important ties to things beyond um, beautiful couch cushions on a highly carved, you know, Rococo seat. It's about truth. It's about a beautiful way of life. Um, and so when Aristotle writes, you know, aesthetics, right, he, he's concerned with beauty on this much larger scale that's, that's not about style cycles, fashion, um, you know, and, and how uh, somebody is going to, how the work's going to sell at the Venice Biennale. And it, and it doesn't, um, it goes back to this idea of where do people get married, right? Mm -hmm. When people get married, they don't say, you know, I really like this temple because I appreciate this style aesthetic that it was a revival of in this particular time. They think of it as, that's my temple. This is my, it has an address that has to, that's tied into a pre-definition of tradition as, a, as an independent thing, right? And it's, you know, it reminds me of, there's a conversation I had with a man who was hired by the church. I'll leave him, uh, leave mm -hmm. him out, his, his name out. We may interview him at some point whose job was to work on the church's international um, reputation. Mm -hmm. And he once said to me, you know, we send out 60,000, at that time it was 60,000 missionaries a year. And he said, but I've seen the early plans that Truman Angel and some of the pioneer architects had for Salt Lake as a city. And had we built that city, there was along the aesthetic lines of the Salt Lake Temple. He said, that would have been such a unique experience that it would have drawn more people to it as an experience to come here and experience that aesthetic creation than all the 60,000 missionaries could have brought into the church at any one time. Hmm. Now, there's no way of proving that, yeah. right? But it's the notion that he's talking about and you're talking about, if I get this right, that when you make choices about function, Mm -hmm. Right. And 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 which are legitimate choices. You bulldoze that building when a new function becomes necessary. Right. And you'll erase it because now it needs to be 40 feet bigger or it needs to have this additional function we've talked about, which you can't necessarily argue against that. But you're starting over again and mm -hmm. it's it doesn't plug into. Well, this idea of impermanence, impermanence is a characteristic of modernity. Yeah. Um, and also short attention spans. When you're talking about the endowment, right? Um, that's the same reason why um, many of us, if you go to a real Russian ballet or an opera, these are four-hour productions, right? Right. And Americans are like, get me out of this. Yeah, don't <laughs> cut don't cut those scenes out of it, Swan Lake. Right. But Give me the full but four But it's hours. also just a cultural thing that we have shorter attention spans, right, because right. of entertainment. Now, um, I'm glad I didn't bring my fidget spinner to this interview. <laughs> for example. <laughs> for example. So I think to answer, to back to your question about Joseph Smith saying, um, are we going to, you know, everything's new, like, you know, reject everything in the past and, and, and we're going to build something new. Um, I don't think that's what he said. I, I think. Um, no, it, I don't think he did. You're it, right. Instead, what he's rejecting Christian creeds as a, quote, abomination. And that's not, you know, PR language. But he did. Uh, or the father in the First Vision account, right? 1835 account. But um, instead, I th think of it the idea of gathering, not just of people, but of truth. And in this case, of beauty. 
when um, the saints were preparing uh, to build uh, the Nabu Temple in DNC section 124, uh, there's this great revelation that instructs the saints to study antiquities and things of the past, to study books, right? And um, I don't know what God meant, you know, when he said antiquities, uh, but, but he wasn't saying forget it, forget everything that's gone before. And so there, uh, is, there are all sorts of, of, of traditions, and, you know, that he could look to, let's say, for, for truth, um, whether it's aesthetics, whether it's um, science, you know, th- these things, Brigham Young didn't see art and science as competing. They, they were all part of a unified truth. And so the project there was to, was to gather things and to, and to bring truth designed from wherever. And so that's why Latter-day Saints, you know, excelled in music, vocal music, you know, instrumental and things like that, even to today. Um, and they weren't, um, they weren't, they also didn't feel they had to come up with their own language. So people spent a lot of time saying, what is Mormon? What is Mormon? You know, we have to get this Mormon aesthetic. Well, this building shows that they used, you know, Gothic revival aesthetics and um, et cetera with, but then they interpret it in Mormon themes. And this is the same, um, th- this is about heritage and about meaning in life. And that's um, a- antithetical to med- you know, the modern project, and especially the idea of constant innovation, which is what defines television, um, the gallery culture that I talk about, um, and other things that I also enjoy, right? But um, another talk that's important to bring into this conversation, uh, in addition to President Kimball's, is Elder Packer's The Arts and the Spirit of the Lord from 1976. Um, for this point, if you read the talk, there's actually... Uh, uh, there's one theme that runs through it that I think is the the message more than about a medium, and it's about heritage. Uh, he says, for example, um, many of the gifted members of the church who are most capable to preserve our cultural heritage and to extend it because of the enticements of the world seek rather to replace it. Wow. And that's, it, that's a... That is a lion in the sand kind of comment, isn't it? It's the idea of, of if you're making a choice between the new and the temporal versus the 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 the, the old and the permanent, yeah. then then you 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 save that. Yeah. Now at the same time, you know, he talks about the value of the new, and he said, "I'm not saying nothing new, but it can't be this sort of nihilistic project in his mind." And so what he's doing here is pushing back against what had happened over the 20th century. Um, And he opens up and he says, you know, I would think that God would think there's a place for artwork of every kind in the kingdom, from the scribbled cartoon to the masterpiece in a goldly frame. Now, this is coming from the man who who prevented the Manti Temple from being gutted, him and Gordon B. Hinckley, um, after what had happened in Logan. There had been, you know, there was such outcry. They were they very, in and said they were very upset by what had happened, and um, uh, in, instead, you know, asked Paul Anderson, Florence Jacobson, to be in charge of the project, uh, so that Emil Fetzer couldn't do just, you know, gut it as as he had done in Logan, and so, so that is an important 
question, an important issue that I see framing Mormon visual culture. It's what is our heritage? Um, how do we preserve it? Uh, and versus those who, who don't consider that, you know, who, who may not care at all. Um, so that that's a that's a debate. I think that that's a part of this because when it comes back to the President Kimball question about Michelangelo, Michelangelo was also continuing a tradition, a very Catholic um, tradition, you know, and you know, and a part of a Renaissance culture that's looking to the past, right? And he's not. But he's not new, gutting the building. No, no, and in new ways, right? He, he's still, you know, retrieving a past into the present mm-hmm. as a way to solve a solution, you know, or provide a design solution for the present, present that projects itself into the future. And so, and so, um, you know, the, the way that these different considerations, um, you know, utility versus beauty, Brigham Young would say that's a false dichotomy that it, it should be as arts and crafts reformers or John Ruskin or other people like that they would say that's a false dichotomy it should be both useful and beautiful there's no reason to make something ugly um, for a purpose um, and and but then what happens is that the church is aged enough y- y- there's an anxiety for meaning and um, and for uh, symbols that are uniquely Mormon. When the conference center was finished, that pulpit from President Hinckley's tree did not have the beehives on it. Now, and President Hinckley said, wait, where, where are the beehives? Where are the beehives? And the windows, Elder Packer's the one that I want sago lilies etched in those windows. Interesting. Because, you know, they want... It wasn't just about function. That's right. It's, and it, it, and it, it seems like this is... And we're, we're going to we're gonna have to end here. There's so much more to talk about here. One of the things that I feel like we you, you've, you've really accomplished here and done for me personally, and I don't want to summarize, try and summarize our whole conversation. I just, but I do want to share this thought, is that this is an on this is a debate, and it's it's ongoing, and it's something we're affected by, and it's not resolved. And and the ideas that you brought up here are gonna, uh, they're they're still we've still got a stake, and there's still people. The fact that we're even having this discussion, I don't think people are aware that these debates are happening even some of the people who are involved in the decision making may not know what's at stake right maybe not you can't speak for them but i do think that um um that you are uniquely placed because of your background as in 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 the divinity school at yale because of your your work in aesthetics and because of your valuation of what has been deemed as decorative, but isn't, mm-hmm. you've been uniquely placed for that. Well, thank you so much for coming. You're welcome. And, thank you for having and I me. feel like we barely scratched the surface. I kind of like that, though. We'll come back. We'll have you back. Is that all right? Can we have you back again? Sure. Maybe not immediately, <laughs> yeah. but we will. Okay. Thank you, Josh. I'd like to thank the scholar, Dr. Josh Probert, for joining us for this episode of Mormon Visual Culture, presented by the Zion Art Society. You can see the works we discussed on our website, zionartsociety.org, under the podcast tab. For more interviews with artists, collectors, and scholars, subscribe to Mormon Visual Culture on iTunes. I'm Micah Christensen. Thank you for listening.